the ninth chapter. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, well, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. Then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He doesn't observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is not from God perform such, I'm sorry, who, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the man born blind, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received a sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? The parents answered, we do know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, for the Jewish leaders had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? 
Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I, tell me so that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, I come, came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he spat on the ground and made mud and took the mud and smeared it on the man's eyes, saying, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man went and washed and he came back and he could see. And we don't get to witness the moment. We just see him walk off in the direction of the Pool of Siloam, and sometime later, we don't know exactly how long, the man shows back up and he says, I can see. And the neighbors and everybody who used to see him begging in the street say, wait, hey, isn't this the man that used to sit and beg? And some were saying it is he, and others were saying, no, no, it's just somebody who looks like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. I am the man. And they said, well, then how is it that your eyes were open? And finally, he says, one thing I know. I was blind. Now I see. Another man would later say those same words. Another man would later say, I was blind, but now I see. His name was John Newton. Newton was, uh, became a minister, but he was a former slave trader. He was born in London. England, 1725. His mother was Elizabeth Seatcliff. She was a non-conforming Protestant, but a woman of faith. And his father, John Newton Sr., was a very agnostic ship's master. From the time he was a toddler, apparently, John Newton's mom taught him from the Bible. So he had those seeds of faith planted but just before his seventh birthday, his mother died of tuberculosis. Just two weeks before he turned seven. And so Newton gave up on God, and he had uh, no use at all 
for faith, just none. His father shipped him off to a boarding school for two years until his dad remarried, and then young Newton came back home. He's now nine, and he is going to work. Um, he goes to work for a um, merchant's office. But because he has a rebellious spirit and he tends to be impulsive, he loses his job. He's fired. Now, Newton will say of himself, he says um, much later in life, he says, I was the chief of blasphemers. He said, I didn't just reject the faith, I was at war with it, defying God every step of the way. So he's lost the job. He's 11 years old. Two years later, his father invites him to start going on sea voyages with him. So the dad's captaining a ship, and young Newton's coming along, and they do this until John Sr. retires, leaving uh, Newton, now 17, in need of work. So his dad does what good dads do. He talks to some friends and associates and finds some good employment for young John. He's going to go to work, he says, on a sugar plantation in Jamaica. Except young Newton does not want to go work on a sugar plantation in Jamaica. So instead, he defies his dad's wishes and signs on with a merchant ship that's sailing into the Mediterranean. He is wild. This is a wild young man. He says, you know, he said, I sinned with a high hand. His whole life is about getting as drunk as he can, finding as many women as he can, convincing other people to be as wild as they can, and raising every kind of hell as he can. He says this about himself. He says, you know, I was just, just all about whatever I wanted and having fun. Now, a year later, he's going off. He's going to meet some friends, and he's 18. And on the way, he gets pressed into service by the Royal Navy. Apparently, if you're 18, they can just grab you off the street and say, you're part of the Navy now. That's what happens to him, and he winds up a midshipman aboard the HMS Harwick. Now, not surprisingly, the discipline of Navy life doesn't suit young Newton. He just doesn't take to it at all. He fancies himself a free spirit, but of course that doesn't work. He decides he's going to uh, desert the Navy, but the Navy found him. And they captured him, and they put him in irons, and the ship's captain had him hauled back on board the vessel, stripped to the waist, tied onto a grating, and flogged eight dozen lashes in front of the other 350 members of the crew. Now Newton feels very put upon and disgraced and unjustly humiliated. So he decides he's going to murder the captain, and then he's going to commit suicide by throwing himself overboard. And he said, that'll show them. But when the hothead cools down a bit, he comes up with another plan and instead asks the captain if he can instead transfer to another ship called the Pegasus. Now, the Pegasus is a slave ship, and it's headed to Western Africa. And the superiors, of course, really glad to have this young man off their vessel agree to it instantly. So he's on the Pegasus. But Newton is still just as arrogant and just as insubordinate as ever. And so he doesn't get along with the crew on the Pegasus either. Their solution is when they get to West Africa, they ditch him there. 
They leave without him. In fact, they give him over to the custody of a man whose name is Amos Clough. And Amos Clough is a slave trader who's living there, and he has a plantation of lemon trees. And Clough decides that he will make young Newton a slave to his African mistress. So it turns out the African mistress is not a very nice person. She is uh, mean-spirited. So she doesn't give Newton any clothes, and she doesn't give Newton any food. And when he's not slaving away on the lemon tree plantation and doing the bidding of this uh, African mistress, he has to beg in the streets for food. You would think, we would like to think, as human beings, that if we are the objects of cruelty, that we learn something from that and we become less cruel ourselves. But human nature doesn't play out that way. And Newton's going to emerge from all this with his conscience about the slave trade completely unscathed. He still doesn't have any squabbles about it. In the meantime, while all this is going on, John Sr. has gotten worried because his son's been missing from home for a really long time and should have been back ages ago. So he asks a sea captain friend of his if he'd start looking for his son. The captain finds him in, in early 1748. Newton gets rescued from this plantation and he's on his way back to England and they're on a merchant ship. And the merchant ship is carrying a cargo, get this, of beeswax. And they are almost home. I mean, they're just there rounding the coastline of Ireland when this terrible storm whips up and the seas get high and this wooden vessel is dashed against the rocks there uh, along the coast of Ireland and a huge hole is bashed into the side of the boat's hull and water's just pouring in fast. They're going to sink. Now, ironically, and we don't know why, he has no clue. God's at work. During this voyage, Newton has started reading The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And he recalls two things. He recalls a line from the book. It's the uncertain continuance of life. That phrase pops into his head. That would maybe come to mind, the uncertain continuance of your life when the water is pouring in through the hull of the ship. And then he remembers a verse from Proverbs that said, because I have called you and you refused, I also will laugh at your calamity. So seeing his life in peril, Newton commences to pray. Now that's how it is. You know, usually when things are going well, maybe we ignore God. But then when some disaster strikes, we rush to take God off the shelf. God is patient and ever-present and always at work. So in that moment, while he's praying, suddenly this large wave slams into the side of the ship so violently that it causes all the beeswax cargo in the hold to shift and it plugs the hole. And they're fine. And they make a safe landing. Now, Newton takes this as a sign, and he marks it later as his moment of conversion, but it doesn't bring on any particular spiritual transformation. No sudden change of heart or character. In fact, he says, I can't consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable 
time afterwards. In real life, sanctification, this work that God does in us to make us holy and like God, isn't generally instantaneous. It's incremental steps, incremental changes made over the course of a lifetime. But Newton now starts reading the Bible. This is added to his reading list. And he returns to the sea as a first mate and then as a captain of several vessels, all various slave ships, trafficking captive people from Africa to the West Indies and back. And there are slave revolts on board these ships. Well, who wouldn't revolt? And the crews are small, so they have to keep the human cargo in chains. And so every human is chained to another human uh, at, the, at the wrists and at the waist and at the ankle, and it's almost impossible to move. Sometimes they're chained, when they're allowed on deck, their chains are attached to a ring in the deck of the vessel, and when they're below decks, they're still chained to rings. And he witnesses the worst methods of torture and the sport that gets made with these African women. But God is at work. John gets married. He marries his childhood sweetheart, and he adopts her two young orphan nieces. And so now he's a family man. He's settling down a little bit. He's still sailing the slave ships, but he's getting to be more responsible. And then at the age of 30, he comes down with a really high fever that he can't shake. And he winds up having a stroke, and it forces him to retire from his sailing career. So he becomes an investor in the slave trade, still making money off of it, and he's hired as the tax surveyor, I'm sorry, tide surveyor, which is a tax man, for the Port of Liverpool. And God is patient, and God is kind, and God is working out a plan. In his spare time, Newton starts studying Greek and Hebrew. He's reading the Bible in the original languages. Faith is starting to take a hold of him, and he becomes a lay preacher, kind of a popular one, in the community. He applies when he's 32 to be ordained as a priest in the Anglican church, but they aren't in a hurry to accept him. So he applies also with the... Um, i got to get this around. He applies with the Presbyterians, and he applies with the Methodists, and he applies with the Independents, and none of them are accepting him. And then finally, I guess the Anglicans do, because seven years later, he's ordained an Anglican priest, and he's assigned to a parish in Buckinghamshire. Now, it sounds biblical. Seven years later. How many times do we hear that in the Bible? But seven years in the Bible represents God's perfect time to bring something to fruition. Newton begins leading a Thursday evening Bible study and prayer service. And he preaches at these services, and each week, most weeks, he writes a new hymn to be sung to some popular tune, and the hymns go with his sermon that he's trying to make a point on. In 1772, he writes the hymn, Amazing Grace. Seven years later, it's published. Now, about the same time, William Wilberforce, who's a member of Parliament, comes to Newton for some spiritual advice, and Wilberforce is thinking about leaving politics and going into the ministry. Newton suggests, no, don't do that. Stay in Parliament and instead serve God where you are. It turns out that Wilberforce begins to believe strongly that there is a need for the abolition of slavery in 
Great Britain and the United Kingdom you know, and the British Empire. And so he is working tirelessly for this. And Newton becomes part of his effort in 1787. They found the Society for Affecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade. People just call it the Anti-Slavery Society. And as part of their effort, Newton publishes a little pam a booklet. I read the whole thing yesterday, Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade. And it's his testimonial and argument about all the things he witnessed in his career in slave trading and all of the reasons that it's vile and that it uh, uh, causes uh, the degradation of the character of not only slaves, but the people who are in that business, and calls for the abolition of slavery. And he makes a confession, and he apologizes again and again in this, and he says, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. The pamphlet gets sent to every member of parliament. It gets circulated on the streets of England. It takes another 20 years of constant effort. But when Newton is 82 years old and quite feeble and almost deaf and has gone completely blind, he receives the good news. Slavery has been outlawed in Great Britain. It's 1807 and he will die December of that year. Who knows what wonders God is doing in and through every single one of us? We don't set out to change, and yet we are transformed. Like the man born blind who was seen by Jesus. Sometimes instantly, most often gradually, over the course of a lifetime, faith as a process. It's the work of God in us. And then one day, somebody will say, what happened? You've changed. You're different. And they'll say, who did this? And we'll say, Jesus. And they'll say, how? I don't know. What I do know is this. I was blind. Now I see. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Amen.